I was a student at OU, prestigious little small private school down the street, uh, I studied finance. And as part of the finance major, much like you guys, you pick your major, but then you take block classes um, that have to do nothing with your major. But it's kind of part of the well-rounded education they want to give you. So I was a finance major, but I was required to take a non-lab physical science. And so I took physics. And the, the physics teacher at OU was... And a very funny and interesting man. He was a huge personality, um, and it was a really enjoyable class until the first test came. So the first test comes, and he drops the hammer on us, and uh, it was hard. It was really hard, but I got the right answers. And um, I, I took the test, and I knew that I got the right answers because it all the math worked out, and I could go back and double-check myself, and I did. And so... You might be uh, surprised as I was to find out when I went to my little uh, breakout session with my TA uh, the other day where we got our tests back, I saw on there that I made something less than 100, considerably less. And um, as he explained the answers and gave them, I'm sitting here double-checking my math or the answers, and I'm like, no, that, that's what I got. Like, that's the answer I got. If the answer number one was 27.2, mine said 27.2. I had all the right answers. And so I went up to him after, and I was like, hey, man, um, I think there must have been some kind of mistake. I've got the right answers here. And he said, yes and no. You have the right numbers, like you came to the right answer, but the way you got there was wrong. Now, I know that some of you know how that goes because you're in these engineering classes and these uh, upper-level physics classes, and you might arrive at the right answer either through sheer luck or just whatever, however you get there, but what your teacher is interested in is you doing it the right way, right? Now, why is that? Why is it not merely enough to have the right answer, to, to have that right thing right in front of you? It's because of this. That there are things which are coming and which were coming further for me down the road in that class, which if you didn't learn how to do it the right way off the bat, everything after was going to come undone. In, In construction terms, it's like this. If you don't build a solid foundation, then when you go to start piling up the floors on top of it, that foundation is going to crack and break. And everything that's put on top of it is going to be compromised. You see, what I learned in that physics class, and what some of you are learning through your engineering and physics classes and math classes, is that there's such thing as having the right answer, but the way you get there is wrong. There's kind of two maths, two ways to count. And in this passage tonight, Paul starts telling us, last week he introduced the good news of the gospel. And he made this big shift from all of the terrible bad news about sin and how we are uh, under God's wrath because of our sinful nature. Last week he made a shift and started talking about, but now there is a righteousness that has been revealed apart from works. He talked about how Jesus comes in and gives us a right standing before God. And so tonight what Paul starts doing is he starts to introduce um, this idea of, of counting, Like, what counts in God's eyes? And if you glance at that sheet right there, and we're about to read it in just a second, you'll see that that word count shows up a bunch in this passage. 
And the way that Paul's using it is kind of the way that you and I used it growing up uh, when we would be playing with our friends in the neighborhood. And so you'd, you'd be playing tag or you'd be playing baseball or whatever it is. And, and when someone like didn't do it the right way, you would say what? No, no, that doesn't count. You've got to go back and do it again or go do it this way. It doesn't count. And in this passage, Paul starts talking about what counts in God's eyes. What is it that adds up to being righteous or right with God? So this is about gospel math tonight. It's about the faith that counts in God's eyes. So let's look at it together. This is Romans chapter 4, and I'm going to read most of it. I'm going to skip a few verses, though, that would require a lot more explanation than we have time for. So, uh, verse 1. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our father according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are counted as a gift, uh, sorry, are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. And he quotes from Psalm 32 here and says, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? Let me hit pause real quick. What Paul's doing when he's talking about circumcised and uncircumcised is he's talking about the Jews and the Gentiles and everyone else. The Jews would have been those who had the mark of circumcision. And the the uncircumcised was everyone else, the Greeks and everyone else to who he would have been writing. Okay, Uh, for we say, verse 9, for we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised, so that righteousness would be counted to them as well, and to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. Okay, lots of circumcision. Uh, Verse 13. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the, the adherents of the law who are to be heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. Is void. Let's get down to 16. That is why it depends on faith. In order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. In the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls things into existence, things that do not exist. In hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations, as had been told. So shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about a 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. Sarah was his wife. 
No, un- no unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised Jesus from the dead, uh, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who is delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. That's a long passage. What is going on there? Paul is making this very thorough case about how it is that we can be counted righteous before God. How is it that that anyone, that mankind can stand before a holy God with all of our sin that we bring to the table? How could we ever stand before Him and say, I belong here? And this is what Paul's getting at. Uh, When Sarah and I lived in uh, Nashville, we were first getting to know one another. Um, Some of y'all have heard stories surrounding the the lure of our dating. It was quite crazy. Um, But one of the things we did early on is we started watching the show 24 together. And we really bonded very heavily over watching this show. And how many of y'all have watched 24 at all? That's so sad. Um, Watch 24. Um... It is the most intense show ever, I think. And so I don't know that Sarah and I were actually getting to know one another. What we were actually doing was just exchanging lots of intense moments together, which felt like intimacy and getting to know one another, but we really weren't. Um, And so, but one of the things that happened during that show is uh, that a man gets introduced as president of the United States. His name is um, President David Palmer. And David Palmer is played by this actor named Dennis Haysbert. And... One of the things about David Palmer, Dennis Haysbert, is that he is this, uh, this tall, beautiful black man, and his voice is as pretty as he is. It is, like, deep and rich and awesome and so unique. And so when I was getting ready for tonight, I was online. I was trying to get his name. I knew him as President Palmer. And the very first hit on Google was actually um, this talk show host named Kelly Williams had him on. To, like basically she's showing off his voice and so I listen to this YouTube clip and so we're going to play it because it's that good so listen to this sweet sweet voice right there oh. <laughs> no, I can only do this as kind of like a spoken word she asked him to, to okay. sing Carly Rae Jepsen's Call Me Maybe Jeans, skin was showing. Hot night, wind was blowing. Where you think you're going, baby? Hey, hey, I just met you, and this is crazy. But here's my number. So call me later. Yeah. All right. <laughs> so that voice. Um, have you all heard that voice before? He's the Allstate guy. Are you in good hands? Right? Like, okay, so here's the thing. That any time I hear that voice, I, I float back in time like 15 years, or actually like 12 years when Sarah and I were getting to know one another, in this like rush of emotions and early, you know, young love or infatuation, whatever it was, like, it just comes over me. 
Because of this voice. <laughs> Where am I going with this? Let's, let's close in prayer. Um, <laughs> transition. Um, in this passage, we'll see, we'll see if this works. In this passage, Abraham invokes the name, sorry, Paul invokes the name Abraham and David. And look, for about half of the church in Rome to whom he was writing, about half the church or so was Jewish people who had been displaced and now maybe had begun to follow Jesus and trust him. The other half were Gentiles and Greeks and all this stuff. But part of this church was Jewish people. And when Paul says the name Abraham and David, their minds do what mine does with Dennis Hester's voice times a hundred. Because when they hear Father Abraham and when they hear about King David, if nothing else, they definitely would have thought this. Okay, those guys are in. That I don't know about what it means to be righteous, but what I do know is that Abraham and David are in. That whatever they did counted in God's eyes. And for Jewish people, that would have been so crystal clear. They were the heroes of the Jewish faith. Now, the question that, that we need to ask is, well, why, what is it about them? What about their lives counted? Why would Abraham bring in, why would Paul bring in Abraham and David right here? Well, let's talk about their stories just a little bit, and I think you'll see where Paul's going with this. So, let's talk about Abraham's story. Uh, some of you may know this, some of you may not, and that's totally fine. I'm going to try to give just enough detail to, to make it make sense. Um, Abraham was a man who first shows up in the Bible in Genesis chapter 11. So pretty early on, he shows up in a genealogy. Um, just like this list of names, and this person had him as a son, and him as a son, blah, blah, blah. And Abraham shows up in there, Abram, actually. Genesis 12, we read this. I'm going to put it up on the screen for us. It says, Now the Lord said to Abram, just... Like out of nowhere, God comes to this man named Abram, and he later becomes Abraham. Okay, now if that sounds weird that God would just come and show up to someone, it was. It's weird now, it was weird then. Okay? Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. What's Abraham's response? Verse 4. So Abram went as the Lord had told him. Okay, so God shows up to Abram and says, Hey, uh, I want you to leave your family. I want you to, know, I want you to leave everything you've ever known. And I'm going to make you into a huge nation. I'm going to give you descendants. I'm going to make you into a powerful nation. And you're going to be a blessing to the world. And Abraham says, okay. And he leaves. So God promises him he'll do all this stuff for him. And after he makes this promise to him in chapter 12, Genesis 13 and Genesis 14 happen. And so the promise was, I'm going to make you a great nation, which means Abraham needed children in order to become a great nation. But in Genesis 13, Genesis 14, you see like years and lots of time pass, and Abraham doesn't yet have any children. And so he starts, as any of us would have, thinking, man, God, uh, 
I thought you said that. I thought you said, you know, you were going to make me into a great nation, but it's not happening yet. And so Genesis 15 happens. And it says this. After these things, meaning like all these other things were happening, but the promise wasn't being fulfilled. So after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision and said, Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless. And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man, Eliezer of Damascus, shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him, God brought Abram outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them. Then he, God, said to Abraham, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he, the Lord, counted it to him, Abraham, as righteousness. Abraham believed God against all against anything that made sense to him in that moment. And Paul uh, kind of shines light on this for us in Romans 4, and he said, look, Abraham did, it didn't make sense because he was 100 years old, and, and Sarah was old, and she was barren. And it's like, I don't know how many 100-year-olds are out there making babies, but it's not a lot. And so, um, but Abraham said he, he had hope against hope. Like, he, he just trusted God. And right there in Genesis 15, 6, it said that God counted it to him. He, co- he counted the belief to Abraham as righteousness. So that's Abram's story. What about David? Well, many, many years after Abram, uh, there would be this great king come to Israel. In fact, David was Israel's greatest king. He was the best king ever. He came at the high water mark, and he led Israel through a period of tremendous flourishing and expansion. And and Israel was a dominant nation uh, back in that day, and God was blessing them in many ways. But in the midst of all that blessing, some of you may know that that David, he wasn't a perfect man by any means, um, but in the midst of all that, he had a very notorious uh, bad thing that he did. Um, David had an affair with a woman named Bathsheba. And and that's bad enough, right, that he used his power essentially to to order her to come to him, and they slept together, and she got pregnant. But once it was found out that she was pregnant, David tried to cover all this mess up, and he ended up having Bathsheba's husband, Uriah the Hittite, murdered. Okay, so bad enough, adultery, yes, not good. Go and kill the husband to try to blame it on him, and bad. Bad news. And David's experience of God through this became very, very clear because rather than uh, God leaving David to kind of pick pick the pieces up and pull himself up out of the bootstraps and go figure it out and work his way back into God's good graces, God sends a prophet named Nathan to David. And Nathan basically comes to David and said, Hey, um, you messed up. And um, it's through a much more clever kind of parable thing that he gives him. And God uses this, this prophet Nathan to show David the error of his ways and how he had sinned. And David repented and he asked God for forgiveness. And it leads David to, to write lots of different psalms and lots of different things. But Paul quotes from Psalm 32. And here's what David says. 
Look at it right there on your sheet in verses um, 7 and 8. It says, Blessed are those whose, what, whose lives are put together and who never mess up. Blessed are those who always do the right thing. That's not what David says, is it? He says, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will, will not count sin. Look at what David is celebrating. He is celebrating God's forgiveness of him. He isn't groveling in what he had done, although he had done a tremendously terrible thing. He is celebrating God's forgiveness, and he is relishing in God's grace to him. The math that added up for both Abram and David was that there is a way to be counted as righteous in God's eyes that is a totally apart from the good things that we do or the not-so-good things that we do. That is, there is a way for you to know that you are right with God separate from either your bad works, which you think are too much, or your good works, which you think merit God's approval of you. And the thing that counts in God's eyes, it is very clear in this passage, is trusting Him. Is trusting Him. Now, notice in Genesis 15, 6, uh, it's still up there. Notice what was counted to Abraham as righteousness. It said that Abraham believed and it was counted. What is it? The believing. He believed God. Now look, y'all, there is a huge difference between believing in God, believing that there is a God out there or something like that. There's a massive difference between believing in God and believing God. What is that difference? Um, Belief in God can be an intellectual exercise. It's that, you know, you, you weigh out kind of the philosophical merits of both, and at the end of the day, you come to this position of saying, well, uh, it seems more possible or plausible that there is a God or, or an intelligent designer or something like that um, than it is that there's not. Right? It's kind of a probability thing. But what is counted to Abram as righteousness is, is the fact that he trusted what God told him. God promised him, I'm going to make you a great nation. Abraham believed him. And so, what does that mean for you and me? What is, it, what is the difference between us believing in God and us believing God? I talk to you guys all the time. We have lunch, we have coffee, and as I said, I, I love doing that. And one of the things that you sit down and tell me, almost to, to a person, is this. I worry. I, I'm just, I'm worried about the future. I'm anxious about next year. I'm anxious about five years from now. Some of you are anxious about ten years from now. You want to know where your life is headed. Um, And and kind of you take that future uncertainty and you import it into the present, and it causes some very serious anxiety in your life. And I want to be careful with this because I know the moment you say anxiety, that's a complex issue. And there's lots of different sources for anxiety, and and some of that is beyond my scope of of knowledge and expertise. Um, And so, like, with those caveats, I do want to say that there is a type of anxiousness that comes from thinking that we are are on the control seat of the world. That ultimately everything that happens to us is up to me. 
And we're not the first persons to think this. Jesus' disciples were anxious just like you and I are. So let's listen to what Jesus says to them. And I've got this up on the screen for us to see. Jesus looks at them and says this, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. What if he had just stopped there? It's like, all right, Jesus, thank you. Um, That's not what he, he goes on. He says, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Have you ever worried about like, what you look like? Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not, much, are you not of more value than they are? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown in the oven, will not he much more clothe you, though you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What will we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Why do I read that? Did you catch what he said at the end there? He said, I get it, y'all, that you worry He said, but I promise you, if you will seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, what Jesus is saying is that if you want to quiet that motor of your mind, which has you in a frenzy, in a froth every single day of just, uh, I just feel like I'm going to explode at any minute. If you want to begin to have that motor turned down, it starts with knowing that you are right with God. And I know maybe you're thinking... God, what is the connection there? It's right here. That fundamentally, you were created to have that relationship be a given in your life. And because of the fall, that was separated. And what Jesus has come to do is to bring you back to God. And until that happens, that motor, there's no way for it to be turned off. Because the burden of you making your life work rests on your shoulders. But when you have a righteousness from God... When you trust Him, you get that righteousness and that motor can start to be turned off. Okay, he goes on. Or or how about this promise, actually? For those of you who struggle to believe that, that you can actually be forgiven for the things that you've done. Some of you have done big things. You really... Just when you lay your pillow on the head at the end of the day, you know that you have screwed up in some really huge ways. And you feel that almost every day. You walk around with lots of guilt and lots of shame and just like, oh, I shouldn't have done that or I shouldn't have hurt that person that way or whatever it is. How can you ever be right with God? How can that ever be taken care of in your life? 2 Corinthians 5.17, Paul says this, If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. So what is it? Abraham believed God and it was counted as righteousness. What does it mean for you to believe God? It would mean for you to take him in his word that he says, look, if you're in Christ, if you trust what he has done, you are a new person. 
Your old sin nature, the pile of things you've done, the things you're doing right now, the porn you looked at last night, the binging you did yesterday, all of the things that you are currently doing that you have done that you will do, you can be declared clean and right in God's eyes by believing that Jesus took all of that for you at the cross. So Abraham believed it was counted to him as righteousness. David was forgiven and he was righteous. What about you? So look, isn't that what you want? Don't you want a way out of the anxiety of this world? Don't you want a way of of walking around and not being defined by your works, whether they're terrible things that that loom over you and haunt you, or that incessant desire to just be as good as possible and to always be performing and doing the the good and right thing and being nice and happy and you all know that's exhausting because it's just like this every day and and I talk to you and you're, you're tired? Don't you want a way to be righteous apart from what you do or have done? It's offered here and Paul's saying, take Abraham and take David as the model. That what counts in God's eyes is is believing what Jesus has done. It's not believing plus all these good things, or believing plus reading your Bible, or believing plus sharing the gospel, or believing plus going to church, or coming to RUF, or joining a small group, or going on a mission trip, or blah, 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 all the things you can do. If you believe that Jesus took the sin from you, and that God credits His righteousness to you, you are right with Him. So what happens when we try to deal with God in some other way? What happens when we try to do this by works? Well, Paul gives us two pictures of what that looks like. The functional righteousness through works looks like this. First one, you will boast about the things you do. You will boast about your life. Look at verse 2 right there. Paul says, if Abraham was justified by works, then he has something to boast about. He goes on to say, not before God. But if Abraham was justified by works, he would have something to boast about. And what he's saying is that if your life, just take stock of your life, if day in and day out you find yourself kind of saying this to yourself or maybe you're doing this with God and you're like, you know, I'm not as bad, or nobody's perfect, but at least I'm not as bad as those people. Right? At least I'm not a racist, or at least I'm not a bigot, or at least I'm not a murderer, or a liar, or those big things. Or, maybe more realistically, at least I'm not getting drunk like the people down the hall. Or at least I didn't do that the other night with that guy. Or at least I didn't do what, or say what that guy said to that girl. We find ourselves kind of positioning our good works in relationship to other people in an effort to build up a standing before God and others, or maybe just to ourselves. So look, if your life is characterized by trying to assess your worth and your value in comparison to others, then you are functionally trying to earn some sort of status or some self-justification through works. Or it can look like this. You think God owes you something. In verse 4, Paul goes on and says this, Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. What's he saying? 
Think of the last job that you took. Maybe that was this summer, maybe it was this semester, maybe it was last year, whether at One Oak or whether with a lawn mowing business or whatever. At the beginning of that work, there was an agreement that you will go do these tasks and we will pay you $10 an hour, or if you're an engineer, a ridiculous amount of dollars per hour. And, um, but, right, it's a transaction. And so you go, you punch the clock, or Andy Cox goes and mows the lawns. And um, whatever it is, you go work, and at the end of a week or two, it's payday, right? So imagine this scene unfolding on payday. Your boss shows up, and, um, and she's really excited, and she's like, hey, I've got a gift for you. Like, okay. And she hands you your paycheck. And she's like, you're welcome. Like, aren't aren't you so excited? And and you're confused, right? Because you're like, well, I mean, I did work for it. After all, this was part of the agreement. But but she's in, 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 incessing is not the right word. What's the word I'm looking for? No, keep coming. Insistent, yes. What's your name? Jeff, ladies and gentlemen. She's insistent because she's giving you a gift. And you're like, no, this, this was due to me. If the way that you interact with God sounds like this, then you're living by works. Okay, God, um, I did the thing you asked me to do. I, I started being nice to the girl down the hall. Or I haven't looked at porn now in two weeks. Or, um, look, I've read my Bible like 13 out of 14 days. Or whatever that thing is that you're trying to kind of do this bargaining with God. And you're coming at the end and saying like, but look, like, when are you going to hold up your end of the bargain? If that's the way you're relating to God, it's kind of this back and forth, this, this jockeying for position and to, for this right standing. Then that's what it functionally looks like to live by works. Because you are basing the relationship in something inside of yourself, in some sort of performance, and not in something outside of you. You're trying to earn righteousness. There's a, there's a transaction going on there, and God says, that is not the math that adds up in my eyes. That the gospel math comes from outside of you. And it's not about what you do, good or bad, or elsewhere, or otherwise. And the good news that Paul's putting before us is that what counts before, before God is faith in His Son. I'm going to finish with this story. Um, when I was uh, out of college and I went and worked in banking for a little while, and then uh, I was an, an RUF intern actually at Vanderbilt University, and uh, there was a guy who graduated just a little bit before I got there, I think maybe a year before, but... His name was um, Shane. He had a a sibling who was still at Vandy, or he lived in town. I don't know, but I met this guy, so I knew him and and kind of knew a little bit of his story. And part of uh, Shane's story was that he was in Navy ROTC during college. And uh, some of you have tried to do that. Some of you may have friends at other schools who do that. And part of the gig is that you... um, They pay for your schooling, and you'll do some training on occasional weekends or maybe during the summer, Uh, but they pay for your college. But after college you're signed up to go serve for X number of years. And I think in his case, it was maybe 10 years because Vanderbilt's insanely expensive. And so, um, but something happened right before Shane graduated college that changed his life. He got a letter from the Navy that essentially said this. He said, "Um, we don't need you. And 
And he was confused, and the letter actually didn't make a ton of sense, so he called them and followed up, and they said, look, yeah, this hasn't happened since World War II. And this isn't like 2004. It's like, this hasn't happened since World War II, so in 60-plus years. But we just don't have a need for you in the Navy right now. So what's going to happen is that you're going to graduate next week, and you're going to be commissioned as an officer, and later that day, you are going to be honorably discharged from your duties. And for the rest of your life, you will receive all of the benefits of being an officer in the Navy. Right. So, um, the campus minister that I was working with at Vanderbilt, um, he was talking to Shane about this, and, and he's just like, I mean, he's ecstatic. He can't believe it. He's like you guys. Like, that is too good to be true. And he was asking Shane, he said, what do people say when, like, what are people, how are people responding to this? And he said, you know, it's really interesting. He said, there are some people who say something like this. Oh, wow, that, that's really cool. Which means they don't understand what he just said, right? <laughs> like, that's not the right response to that situation. And he said, other people are just like, What? I mean, that's full benefits. That's like retirement package beginning at 22. He literally didn't have to work ever again. I think he did, but like that's the implications of this. And full benefits, medical, all this, it's amazing. He said, so some people would just freak out. But he also said there was a third group of people. When his fellow ROTC people found out about it, their response was some version of blank you, Shane. Why do you think the response is that way? It's pretty obvious. Because Shane was getting the full benefits for something he didn't do. He was getting all the benefits for something that he didn't serve in that way, and yet he got all the benefits of it. Look, y'all, until you realize that that's what's happening in the gospel, you're going to be apathetic to it. You're going to be indifferent. You're going to think, okay, Jesus died on the cross. I've heard it before, blah, blah, blah. But until you realize what's offered to you is an existential okayness with who you are and who God is, and you can fundamentally walk out into the world being okay and not having to incessantly focus about every little jot and tittle of your life, you don't have to like micromanage everything and plan out the next 10 years, that you can actually rest in God's love for you until you understand that you are getting all of the benefits for something you didn't do, the gospel will not make sense to you. But y'all, it's true that what Paul is offering us and what the gospel offers us is a math that counts in his eyes, and it comes through faith. And that means you can stop trying to work for it. You can stop being defined by all the things you think are too bad in your life. And you can receive what Jesus has done for you and receive all of the benefits of that for the rest of your life. That's what counts in God's eyes. And it can add up for you right now. You don't have to do anything. Just say, God, I receive it. I need that. I'm tired of trying to do this on my own. Would you make that true for me? Let's pray together.